Amen. As I said earlier, I want to just welcome you to Hagerstown Church. If, if you're new around here, we're glad uh, to have you. And, and uh, if you're, again, if you're with Virginia Avenue Baptist Church, we are more than pleased that you are with us as well. It's, it's a sweet, sweet feeling uh, to know that um, these last uh, 50 weeks or so that we've not been alone in this city, uh, but that we have a sister church who um, regularly prays for us, encourages us, uh, and is present with us as our God is as well. And so we're just, we're thankful that you guys are here with us. And uh, yeah, I want to tell you, remind you about something that you may have heard of before. It's called the Christmas Truce. The Christmas Truce. And no, it's not a story about a brother and sister who fought over some type of a toy. Uh, but it, actually, the Christmas Truce occurred on and around Christmas Day in 1914. And the sounds of uh, rifles firing and shells exploding, those faded in places on the Western Front during World War I, and they did that in favor of the holiday, of Christmas. And uh, during the un unofficial ceasefire, soldiers from both sides, they came out of their foxholes, out of their trenches, and they began to share gestures and gifts of goodwill. And uh, at the first light of dawn on Christmas Day in 1941, uh, some German soldiers, first they came out of their trenches and they approached the Allied lines across no man's land. And uh, they called out Merry Christmas in English. And at first the Allies were a little bit con con uh, concerned and they were afraid that it was a trick. But they saw that the Germans were unarmed and so they began to climb out of their trenches as well. And there in the middle they met and shook hands, enemy soldiers, one with each other. And then again, they exchanged presents and cigarettes and plum pudding, and they sang carols and songs. And, and some of the Germans, they lit up Christmas trees around their trenches. And there was even a, a story of a, a friendly game of soccer that took place there on that Christmas morning. And a German lieutenant, uh, he is recounted as, as saying, how marvelously wonderful, yet how strange it was. How marvelously wonderful, and yet how strange it was. It was. That day, some found it difficult to celebrate. It was Christmas, but they used that ceasefire. They used that opportunity to retrieve their fallen comrades and to, to do uh, reverence to their, their, their fallen bodies. It was an odd and yet joyful occurrence, this Christmas truce, if you will. But either way, when Christmas ended, it wasn't long before... The shots could be heard again, for the percussion of the, of the shells that were firing were also felt. Business as usual, pain, loss, fear, tears, and agony. And it wasn't just there, it was all around the world. It does seem as though there are certain periods of time in our year where these emotions and sensations, where they will cease, pain, loss, tears, agony, yet they're back at it the next day. And the world is full of pain. It's not just regulated to wars that occurred in the 20th, 20th century, but it's all through the history of mankind. We've experienced this type of pain. We've been, we, our experience has been rife with suffering and tears. Our text this evening that I want to bring to you is, is really, it, it bears witness to that fact. We live in a day and age, and we always really have, almost since the beginning, we've lived in this time of pain. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, it will be on the screen as well, and so you can follow along. I actually want to read the first 10 verses. 
of this, of this chapter. And so if you can, follow along. The Bible says this, and Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. God, we truly are gathered here this evening to make much of you. We've come with open hands and, and open hearts, ready to hear what you have for us this evening. And so as we open your text of scripture, we pray that you'd encourage us, that you'd bring us hope and joy. God, that you'd correct us if we're wandering from you. And all these things, God, we pray that we would receive the hope of the incarnation. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. In this text, we see uh, John, the writer, and he's weeping. Why is he weeping? He, well, he's seen a vision, and it brings him to tears. It brings him to a place of devastation. One pastor, when he was thinking of this, he said, when, uh, when, when speaking of his tears, he claims that, all of these tears, they really represent the tears of all the people who have gone before him. He says, John's tears represent the tears of all God's people through all the centuries. Those tears of the apostle John are the tears of Adam and Eve, driven out of the Garden of Eden. As they bowed over their first grave, as they watered the dust of the ground with the tears over the silent, still form of their son, Abel. Those are the tears of the children of Israel in bondage as they cried unto God in their affliction and slavery, they're the tears of God's elect through the centuries as they cried unto heaven. They are the sobs and tears that have been wrung from the heart and soul of God's people as they looked on their silent dead and as they stand beside their open graves, as they experience in the trials and sufferings of life heartaches and disappointments indescribable. And such is the curse that sin has laid upon God's beautiful creation. And this is the damnation of the hand of him who holds it, that usurper, that interloper, that intruder, that alien, that stranger, that dragon, that serpent, that Satan devil. And John says, I wept audibly for the failure to find a redeemer meant that this earth and its curse is consigned forever to death. It meant that death sin, damnation, and hell should reign forever and ever, and the sovereignty of God's earth should remain forever in the hands of Satan. And this is what was taking place when John sees his vision. Who can open the scroll? Who can turn the tide? Who can change things? Who can rescue us? 
who can remove the pain and the suffering, who can remove sin and temptation. John felt in that moment that they were resigned, that all humanity for eternity would be resigned to this curse. And it's not so difficult. You can't see this vision as just as John did, but it's not difficult for you to imagine pain as a reality. The brokenness is before all of us. Not only does it affect all of us, but the brokenness and the, the sinful nature is in all of us. And it's cyclical and it's perpetual. And the sins of the Father, they're passed on generation after generation after generation. And you no doubt see that in your own life. You see the sins of your father or your mother that you are also continuing to, to, to demonstrate and sin against your own children, perhaps. And year after year, we hope and believe that, that it'll be better. And yet year after year, things seem to get worse. And not just in our families and not just in our cities, but around the world. And you might say, well, this is a chipper sermon for Christmas Eve, isn't it, Pastor? It doesn't end here, but it's a reality that we all face. And we can push it to the side for a day or two. And yet when Christmas is over and we pack up the trees and the presents are all on their way to the goodwill, we'll remember the pain. And we'll remember what we tried to mask. And the holiday season, for many ways, I believe is a feeble attempt to mask all the pain that we experience. And I'm not talking about Christmas and what it really means, but all the things that are associated, all the new th things that culture tells us are important. We like to have them, many of us say, that we like to have them to numb what we're dealing with, to distract us even. And for some of us, it, it works well. We love Christmas and we love the, 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 the distraction that it brings for us, but others not so much. Maybe you're here this evening and you say that I, 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 would, I would be more with John. And I would say that I often, even in this time, struggle to see the positive and to celebrate. Maybe that's you here tonight. You'd say there's not enough hallmark to help you escape the feeling of loneliness. Maybe there's not enough eggnog to numb the pain or, of abuse or loss. John sees this pain. He sees this, ex this experience of suffering and he's weeping with us. As he looks around and he sees, the scroll cannot be opened. He weeps because he feels there is no hope. This might be a simplistic explanation, but the scroll simply means, uh, there's many, much more to it, but simply we could say this, it's the deed to the earth in a sense. In a way, it contains the right to rule here on earth. And whoever can open it, whoever is able and willing to open it, will rule. As they look around, they say, there's nobody that's able to open this scroll. There's nobody able to rule. There's nobody able to rescue and to take back the deed to the earth from Satan, the usurper. So John is crying out with all of us, and he's saying, is there anyone that can save us? Is there anyone that can rescue us? And you're with me. You hear this not just, on, uh, not just in your own life and not just around Christmas time, but all year round. We, we see it in the faces of those without a loving mother and father, maybe even abused or neglected. We see it in the wars that shatter lives all around the world. We see it in the, the rifts in families and the faces of drug addicts. A longing, a pain, and a suffering 
So here's the, here's the turning point. Here's where we, we turn the tide. Here's where it gets a little more chipper because the, the, the very point of, of, of Christmas, the beauty of Scripture, of Christmas rather, is that God speaks in to our existence. He speaks in to our pain. And Advent is a period of both remembering what God has promised and waiting for what he will do. Remembering what he has promised and fulfilled in the past and longing and desiring to see what he will do in the future. And just a few weeks ago, as Advent season began around here, we, we began a series. On the first Sunday, we remembered that, that God spoke into our hearing the promised coming. He gave us the promise coming. If you remember in Genesis chapter 3, he promised in the face of pain and loss, in the face of sin, destroying the gift that God had given, he promised that he would send a deliverer. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6, we read of the promised birth. That Jesus, this deliverer, that he would be born in a unique way, that he would come to us, that he would be born in, in the flesh. The next week we looked at Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 and verse 5. We looked at the promised life that he, this deliverer, this Jesus, that he would live a righteous life uh, as a model for us, but also for a substitute. Not just as a model, but for a, as a substitute. He would live righteously in our place for those who would place their faith in him. This is a promise that we see in the Old Testament that God gave to the Jews. The next week, we looked at the promised death just this past Sunday. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 through 9, we learned that this deliverer, that he would die for the unrighteous, that he would live a righteous life. He would obey the law for his children, and he would pay the penalty for them, not themselves. That was in Isaiah chapter 53. And this evening... Look at the promised resurrection. It's also found in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 10 through 11. We, we read that this deliverer, that he would die for the unrighteous, but he would also rise from the grave victorious over death, over hell, and over Satan. He would rise from the grave victorious over death, hell, and Satan. And so the question is asked, who has the power to defeat Satan and his demon host, to wipe out sin and its effects in our lives, and to reverse the curse on all of creation? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to look into it. And as John cries out, an elder stops him. He reminds him of the promises of God. And so this evening, I'm not here to remind you of all of the pain and the suffering that we face on a daily basis and the struggles that we have and the temptations and the sin that besets us ultimately damns us. I'm not here to remind you it's ever present in your minds, no doubt. But what I want to remind you about this evening is what that elder reminded John about. That there is one. There is one. So he raises John's eyes to see what he was forgetting. That God had not forgotten his people, but John had forgot God's promises. And what were they? We just went over them. He says to him specifically in verses 5 and onward, he says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. 
Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. John describes what he begins to see after the the elder introduces and reminds him of the promises of God, of this deliverer. He points to the one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. This connection is to his identity as the one of whom the Jewish prophets of old had predicted and prophesied. That the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah and that he would be an heir to the throne of that great king, David. He was from David's line. It emphasized his kingly reign. That he would rule. Folks, that's something that we need to be reminded of this Christmas season. As we gather around the nativity and as we peer into the manger this evening, we see the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he will reign, and he does reign, even now. This is something that we need to be reminded of. This is what Christmas is about. We look in, we see the lion of the tribe of Judah. But he also points out that he sees a lamb. This same lion is also a lamb, which it emphasizes his priestly role as a sacrifice, that he would intercede for his people and that he would pay the debt of his people. This is what is meant by the lamb. Perhaps the most beautiful part of this description of this lion lamb is the, is the part, though, that says that he was standing. He was standing alive on his feet, yet it looked as if he had been slain. The scars from the deadly wound this lamb received were clearly visible, and yet he was alive. The demons and the wicked men, they conspired against him, and they killed him. Yet he rose from the dead, and thereby he defeated and triumphed over all of his enemies, and therefore he defeated and and triumphed over our enemies as well. You've never seen a dead person standing. They threw all they could muster at Jesus, and when it was all said and done, Jesus was the only one standing. We see him standing as if to say that his hand has been raised at the end of the bout. So as we look in that nativity, as we peer into the manger, we see a victorious, reigning king, a sacrifice that was victorious and is even now standing in victory. The lamb who was standing in that picture represented the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why is Jesus alone able to open the scroll? Why is he the only one? Because he alone is the creator and he alone is the victorious redeemer. If you look down at verse 9 there in chapter 5, goes on to say, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? For you were slain, past tense, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So what is Christmas about? What are we to think of this manger, the incarnation of Jesus Christ? What are we to think of his life that he lived both in our place and as a model for us? What are we to think of his death? What are we to think of his resurrection? Jesus, when speaking of his resurrection and speaking of his own identity, 
He said to a woman in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He asked Martha. So my question for you this evening as we come to a close is this. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection? Do you believe that he is the life? Not just that he resurrected, but that all resurrection is made possible and will take place through his person. Do you believe in him? Do you believe that though he, that you die, yet shall you live if you're in Christ? Do you believe this? The promise Jesus is making to you this evening is this. If you will follow him, if you believe in him, you too will experience his resurrection power as well in all areas of your life. So perhaps you're here this evening and you've stumbled in and you're afraid you've left the, the iron on and the stove on and you've burnt Christmas dinner. And there's so many Christmas presents to wrap and you'll be up all night and you'll not get it all done and it's, you've lost sight of what Christmas is all about and you've become distracted. If you're here tonight, I want to remind you of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he alone is able to open the scroll, that he alone is able to rule and to reign, and he is. And maybe you've also stumbled in here tonight and you're alone. This is a difficult time for you. I want to lift your eyes. There's much to cry about, but there's so much more to celebrate in the, in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, perhaps you're here tonight and you feel overwhelmed with the sinfulness of others against you. And it's difficult for you to celebrate Christmas as you consider all the wrongs that have been committed against you. And perhaps as you continue to, to think through this sinfulness, you see it in your own soul and you're overcome with it. Maybe that's you tonight. And you know all too well the tears that John spoke of. You sense it in your own life. You see it in those around you. I can tell you that Hagerstown, you know this, is not exempt from the, the suffering. And I trust that, that you are not either. To you, I want to extend an invitation on behalf of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, an invitation to see that he is the worthy lamb who died for the forgiveness of sins. And it is my plea that every single soul here this evening would say that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And that as we leave this place, that our hearts and our souls will be transcendent with joy as we remember what Christmas is all about. So as we peer into the nativity, as we gaze upon the, remain, on the manger, remember the promises of God. That though, though darkness is strong, and though sin and evil abound, God is not dead. He doesn't sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right shall will prevail with peace on earth, good will to men. That God would send a deliverer who would be born of a virgin, that he would live a righteous life, that his death would be sacrificial and in our place, and that this same deliverer, Jesus Christ, would resurrect and defeat Satan and death itself. And this lion, this lamb is standing, and he alone is worthy to rescue and to reign. Christmas in 1914, as the sun set, the gifts had been given, the carols had been sung, 
The soldiers went to, to, to sleep as they awoke the next day. It was back to where it had been. Back to pain, back to suffering, back to agony. And my prayer for us this evening as a people is that that would not be our experience. And that as we rise on December 26th, that December would still, Christmas would still be alive and well. And that we would see and, and, and savor the promises of God. Would you pray with me? God, what a gift you have given to us. You've spoken into existence. You've not been silent. And yet that was your right. That was your prerogative. But in your grace and in your mercy, you've you've extended a hope to us that we did not deserve, nor do we desire, or know that was possible. And even as John, we look around in agony and in pain, in our own sin, and we wonder if there's any way to be rescued. You've spoken into that, and you've given us your promises. The promise of a deliverer, the promise of a birth, the promise of a life, a righteous life. The promise of a sacrificial death. The promise of a miraculous resurrection. Jesus, we submit to you this evening as our God and King. You rule in our hearts and our lives well into this next year. And we ask that these things be done not for our glory, but for yours and for our joy. Amen.